This show is made possible entirely by listeners just like you, and I really do need your help. For all the things you can do, check out the big support box at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, The Bugle, The Young Turks, NPR, The Onion Radio News, Le Show, and The Colbert Report, with a bonus video clip for our iPhone app users, also from The Colbert Report. Mo, in an effort to rid their society of Western customs, last week Iran began a crackdown on what? Hmm. Well, it's not going to be McDonald's or Starbucks. I mean, that's something... uh, um, uh, Can you give me a clue? Yeah, well, basically... (laughs) I was just going to wait till you ask. Basically, when Iran looks to the West, it sees Billy Ray Cyrus. Oh, they're they're eliminating Hannah Montana. No. Oh, well, because... Oh, they're, they're eliminating achy, breaky hearts? No. <laughs> Which would be lovely. No. Well, what was Billy Ray known for? for he was known time? for, um, uh, it was blue jeans and then... And? He, and uh, oh. Part, part of his look. Oh, oh, oh. oh. Blue jeans and, and is, was it sunglasses? All no, business no. up front. Oh, oh, oh. Mullet, mullet, Yes. Iran has banned the mullet. By the way, I love when this show turns into password. Yes, <laughs> You know, the mullet hairstyle. It's conservative cleric in the front, party in the back. It's it's welcome in Iran to know more. Offending haircuts will be removed with clippers, and any barbershop providing them will be shut down. This may be an important first step in welcoming Iran into the global community. On this one issue, Iran is now in agreement with everyone in the world except dudes with mullets. It, it also it completely eliminates the, the ongoing possibility they might have gotten a NASCAR race. That's true. It'll never happen now. The troubling thing here is that Iran is not so much cutting off Western influence, but cutting off the possibility of something we all hoped we'd someday see. Iranian rednecks. Imagine acid-washed denim veils. An Iranian Toby Keith singing, I'm proud to hate an American. Or like a Muhammad Al-Foxworthy doing stand-up, making jokes like, you know you're an Iranian redneck if you use the same stadium for monster trucks that you use for stoning adulterers. fashion news now and uh, the Iranian government has issued a list of government approved haircuts <laughs> I mean it's magnificent it's worth looking up it's uh, it looks like a poster from inside a barber shop in the 1970s from a simpler time when you would just point at a number and say do that one <laughs> is that what all... people still do <laughs> I, d- I don't well, know I, have, I haven't been into a hairdresser's shop this millennium <laughs> Is that true? It is true, yeah. That's great. But what the wife sorts me out. <laughs> there are there are some hairstyles, therefore, that are now banned in Iran. 
Uh, they include ponytails, mullets, and elaborate spikes. It's like they're pretending 1980s soft rock never happened, don't they? <laughs> How can they do that? How can they just it's airbrushing musical history the Does, mullet is gone the white snake mean nothing to the these mu- people the mullet one must now choose business at the front or party at the back <laughs> never the twain shall meet rest in peace sweet mullet <laughs> this is what happens these days john yeah this is this is a classic example of too much polo too many politicians with too much time on their hands and the same thing happened here under the Labour government. They felt they all felt they had to do stuff, and as a result, they just crapped out legislation like Catholic rabbits, um, roughly speaking. Every minor gap in conversation in the House of Commons was filled with some piddling piece of lawmaking, like you can't protest within 20 miles of Westminster unless you've knitted your own placard. Um, part government wanting to control public dissent, part well-meaning effort to boost the struggling wool-making industry. Uh, or also, you can dig a hole in your, you can't dig a hole in your garden without first getting written permission from your local worm habitat protection agency, <laughs> and then subsequently having it checked by the police to make sure you haven't filled that hole with severed limbs. So, th- I mean, this is, this, is just, this is just the Iranian government doing the same, just excessive legislation. Um, that Interestingly, uh, the, they're, they're quite in favour of Elvis-style quiffs. Yes. Which could be a very interesting new direction for Islamic hardliners. And are they going to go with the hips as well? I mean, that's, <laughs> that's the big issue here. But it's very hard to spout misogynistic fundamentalism when you're gyro- gyrating to a rock and roll groove. Oh, that's right. But I've, I've always found that myself anyway. <laughs> I've tried. Believe me, I've tried. They've said, they've said this is an attempt to rid the country of decadent Western cuts, uh, and the culture ministry has produced this catalogue of haircuts meeting government approval, uh, and both side partings and, as you say, Elvis quiffs <laughs> are in. So, you know, let me get this straight. The culture minister is getting rid of decadent Western cuts by promoting the Elvis quiff. <laughs> Will he be banning Reebok shoes while promoting the high-collared sequin jumpsuit as well? <laughs> he, he also announced that using hair gel is within the law, right. albeit in modest quantities. It basically seems that the Iranian government want their entire male population to look like Danny Zuko from the movie Grease. <laughs> Not I'll a bad you, look. I'll take your word for that, John. Not, yeah. Are you a big fan of that? Big yeah. fan of Grease? Well, I mean, listen, Andy, that's a, that's a rock-solid film. <laughs> Rock solid. Summer loving. I mean, come on. <laughs> come on. A spokesman for the ministry said the proposed styles are inspired by Iranians' comple- uh, uh, complexion, culture, religion, and Islamic law. Missing <laughs> out, crucially, and John Travolta as well. John Travolta back when he was incredible. Sandy, can't you see? Wah-yah-yah-yah. <laughs> But it's not just hair that the Iranian government style regulations apply to. They've also banned uh, Ugg boots with miniskirts, rugby socks with Y fronts, shoes with wheels. I mean, don't they want their children to get to school on time? <laughs> and McEnroe headbands with jacket and tie. Those are oh, out. Oh, come on. Those are out. Come on. Either or. <laughs> yeah, you might remember that uh, an Iranian cleric uh, accused immodestly dressed women of causing earthquakes and other <laughs> natural disasters uh, yeah. earlier this year. If that's the case, then what on earth have men been guilty of causing by frosting their tips? <laughs> Doing what, mate? <laughs> cool. D- d- frosting their tips, Andy. Right. I think that's where you kind of go a little bit blonde on the top of your hair, but I'm not oh, entirely right. sure. Okay, it's not s- some some new, more humane version of circumcision. <laughs>
book out. Uh, it's called Why He's a Saint, and it's about Pope John Paul II. And it talks about how uh, he practiced something known as self-mortification. Mm -hmm. All right. In other words, he would wh uh, whip himself, he would hurt himself, he would force himself to sleep on the floor, and this was all acts of penitence. And uh, he wanted to get closer to Christian perfection, yeah. according to the book. Okay. Once again, for us non-religious folks, this sounds like totally cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Okay, uh, you want to sleep on the floor, and you know you feel like somehow that perfects you. That's super weird, but you know, I but I can live with it. Okay, he had a belt that he would take wherever he went, including on vacation, and go to work on himself. Like you know, the Shia do this in the Islam culture, and when we when we see it, you know, when Americans see that on TV, they're like, oh, those crazy Shia as they beat themselves in the back with their chains, right? And that was done recently, uh, well, it's done every year, but re done recently in, a, in one of the main uh, Shia religious festivals, right? But apparently the Pope was doing something incredibly similar when he takes the pellet, and he's like, wasikdira, wasikdira, they could hear him from outside the room, okay? Uh, you know, basically hurting himself like that. Look, if you're religious, and deeply religious, maybe somehow that makes sense to you. They say, hey, that you connect to Jesus that way and you felt his pain. The Shia are very similar. They talk about they feel bad that they weren't there uh, in the important battle that was fought 1,500 years ago, and that they want to connect to that pain of the man that they did, you know, let down by not being there, even though it's not at the same time period. I don't know. But for us non-religious people, it seems so strange that it's I, honestly he's the pope he's the leader of your religion if you're a catholic right that it devalues your your beliefs because it seems like well who can believe such madness right what does you beating yourself with a belt have anything to do with perfecting your religion or being a better person or you know or getting into heaven i don't know it just, it makes no sense and i don't and of course in the catholic eyes they're like oh this is awesome what a great guy the Pope was. Mm -hmm. Look at how much closer he tried to be to Jesus. And look at how much he punished himself. But that's part of what I hate about the religions. I've got to be honest. Mm -hmm. It's all about guilt, feeling guilt, punishing yourself. You're a bad person. And the way you, you know, perfect yourself is by beating the shit out of yourself. Right. right? That's crazy. It's crazy in Islam. It's crazy in Christianity, Catholicism, etc. And now, of course, you're like, hurry up, hurry up, make him a mistake, make him a mistake. They're looking for a miracle. They've got to confirm a couple of miracles and a, and a card trick in order to make him a saint. You know, it's really funny you mention that, because uh -huh. today Laura Ingram was talking about guilt and mm -hmm. how liberals are, this is what she says, liberals are so afraid to feel guilt, right? And that guilt is such a great thing in life because it, it steers you to the right path in life. It'll always make sure you do the right things. And she was basically saying that those on the left do whatever they can not to feel guilty so they could run rampant and, you know, be whores and be terrible people, <laughs> and they don't have to feel guilty about it. They don't yeah. have to feel bad about it. Yeah. Okay. First of all, Laura Ingram is a jackass, so everybody knows that, right? So let me answer a nonsensical point with a sensical point. Sensical is, is that a word? All right. The sensible point. Mm -hmm. Look, here's the thing, right? If you're going to go out and harm someone else, mm -hmm. is there value in our genes that make us feel guilty about that? Absolutely. That's why they're in our DNA, okay? And you should feel guilty about that. Now, but if you're going to feel guilty because you did something absolutely harmless because some stupid book told you, oh, that's a dogma, the Sky Lord will be really angry with you if you touch your penis, right? And then you're like, oh, no, oh, my God, oh, I feel, I 
felt lust towards a girl. That's in your goddamn DNA. Excuse my language. Anyway, so then you're like, what's sick to learn? What's sick to learn? What's sick to learn? And you're beating yourself sexless because you had a lustful thought or something. Well, you're being crazy, man. The question is, what should you feel guilty over? If you feel guilty over hurting somebody else, yes, that's healthy. That makes us human. If you feel guilty about something that, where you didn't harm anybody at all, but some dude, some rabbi wrote a book 2,000, 2,500 years ago saying, oh, yeah, yeah, there are these things, I don't know, I don't like them, you know? And if you wear clothing of two different types, man, you should hate yourself. Look, again, I feel bad every time we do the stories. I feel like, you know, people are going to feel like, hey, I'm disrespecting their religion, etc. But, look, of course, it all depends on your interpretation. But, I mean, what can I do? I mean, this is crazy stuff. I mean, you've got to recognize this crazy stuff. And remember, the Catholics think the Pope is, like, infallible. Like, that, that, he's got it on lockdown. He's got this shit figured out. And he's like... God, what should I do? What? Sick the Lord? What? Sick the Lord? What? Sick the Lord? And you're like, no, 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 but you can't. that's crazy. No, don't do that. Don't do that. And so if you believe that that dude is infallible, I hate to do it to you, but I got a bone to pick with you. I don't think that's correct. Call me crazy. You support this podcast at no additional cost yourself when you shop at Amazon through a special widget posted at bestoftheleft.com. You can use the widget to search for what you're looking for or simply click through and shop the site normally. Better yet, click through on the widget once and bookmark that page to use every single time you shop. By doing this, Amazon will donate around 7 or 8% of the cost of your order to support this show without adding a dime to your bill. It's very little effort on your part, but can make a huge difference to support the show. Check out the widget on the right side of bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. Which is the bloodier scripture? That's the question we put to NPR's Barbara Bradley Haggerty. As the hijackers boarded the airplanes on September 11, 2001, they had a lot on their minds. And if they were following instructions, one of those things was the Quran. In preparation for the suicide attack, their handlers had told them to meditate on two chapters of the Quran in which God tells Muslims to cast terror into the hearts of unbelievers. Slay the idolaters wherever you find them, arrest them, besiege them, and lie in ambush everywhere for them. The chapter, as read in this audiobook, continues. Prophet, make war on the unbelievers and the hypocrites and deal righteously with them. Hell shall be their home and evil fate. When Osama bin Laden declared war on the West in 1996, he cited the Quran's command to strike off the heads of unbelievers. More recently, U.S. Army Major Nidal Hassan lectured his colleagues about jihad and the Quran's exhortation to fight unbelievers and bring them low. Hassan killed 13 people at Fort Hood, Texas last year. Given this violent legacy, Philip Jenkins decided to compare the brutality quotient of the Quran and the Bible. Much to my surprise, the Islamic scriptures in the Quran were actually far less bloody and less violent 
than those in the Bible. Jenkins is a religion historian at Penn State University and author of the forthcoming book Dark Passages, which is already drawing controversy before it's even published. Violence in the Quran, he and others say, is largely a defense against attack. Then we turn to the Bible, and we actually find something as a, uh, for many people, a real surprise. There is a specific kind of warfare laid down in the Bible, which we can only call genocide. It is called harem, and it means total annihilation. Consider the book of First Samuel, when God instructs King Saul to attack the Amalekites and utterly destroy all that they have, and do not spare them. But kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. When Saul failed to do that, God took away his kingdom. In other words, Saul has committed a dreadful sin by failing to complete genocide, and that passage echoes through Christian history. It is often used, for example, in American stories of the confrontation with Indians. Not just is it legitimate to kill Indians, but you are violating God's law if you do not. Jenkins notes that the history of Christianity is strewn with harem. During the Crusades in the Middle Ages, the popes declared the Muslims Amalekites. In the great religious wars, Protestants and Catholics each believed the other side were the Amalekites and should be utterly destroyed. But Jenkins says even though the Bible is violent, on the whole, Christianity and Judaism today are not. What happens is in all. Religions, as they grow and mature and expand, they go through a process of forgetting of the original violence, and I call this a process of holy amnesia. They make the violence symbolic. Wiping out the enemy becomes wiping out one's own sins. Jenkins says, until very recently, Islam had the same sort of holy amnesia. Many Muslims interpreted jihad, for example, as an internal struggle. Not physical warfare. This is just preposterous. I'm sorry. Andrew Bostom is editor of the book The Legacy of Jihad. He says there's a big difference between the Bible, which describes the destruction of an enemy at a point in time, and the Quran, which urges an ongoing struggle to defeat unbelievers. It's an aggressive doctrine. The idea is to impose Islamic law on the globe. Take suicide attacks, he says, a tactic that Muslims have used to great effect in the U.S., Iraq, Afghanistan, and the Middle. East. It's true, suicide from depression is forbidden in Islam, but Bostom says the Quran and the Hadith, or sayings of Muhammad, do allow self-destruction for religious reasons. The notion of jihad martyrdom is extolled in the Quran, Quran verse nine one eleven. Uh, and then in the Hadith, it's even more explicit. This is the highest form of jihad to kill and to be killed in acts of jihad. That may be the popular notion of jihad, says Walid El Ansari, but it is the wrong one. El Ansari, who teaches Islamic studies at the University of South Carolina, says the Quran explicitly condemns religious aggression and the killing of civilians by making the distinction between jihad, legal warfare with the proper rules of engagement, and irjef or terrorism. All of those types of incidents, 9/11, Major Nidal Hassan, and so forth, those are all examples of irjef, not jihad. Which is wrong according、oh, yeah. to scripture. Oh yeah, absolutely. It takes one to hell. So, what's going on here? After all, we all have images of Muslim radicals flying planes into buildings, shooting up soldiers at Fort Hood, and trying to detonate a bomb on an airplane on Christmas Day. 
How do you reconcile a peaceful Quran with these violent acts? Walid El Ansari says, in the past 30 years, there's been a sort of perfect storm that has allowed for a violent strain of Islam. The first factor is political, that is, frustration at Western intervention in the Muslim world. The second is intellectual. The rise of Wahhabi Islam, a more fundamentalist interpretation of Islam subscribed to by the likes of Osama bin Laden. And so, El Ansari says, fundamentalists have distorted Islam for political purposes. Basically what they do is they take verses out of context and then use that to justify these egregious actions. El Ansari says we are seeing more religious violence from Muslims today because the Islamic world is far more religious than is the West. Still, Philip Jenkins says Judeo-Christian cultures should not be smug. The Bible has plenty of violence. The scriptures are still there. They are dormant but not dead. And can be resurrected at any time. For example, by white supremacists who cite the murderous Phineas when calling for racial purity, or by a conservative Christian when shooting a doctor who performs abortions. In the end, the scholars can agree on one thing. The DNA of early Judaism, Christianity, and Islam code for a lot of violence. Whether they can evolve out of it is another thing altogether. God cites moving in mysterious ways as his motive in killing 3,000 New Guineans. It's the Onion Radio News. I'm Doyle Redland. In his first official statement since a tidal wave claimed the lives of an estimated 3,000 in Papua New Guinea, the Lord announced today that he killed the island villagers as part of his long-time moving in mysterious ways plan. The Lord Almighty had this to say. This seemingly senseless natural disaster is part of my unknowable divine plan for mankind. Trust me. Despite top religious leaders' reluctance to speculate on the Lord's motive in the killings, many contend it was retribution against heathen savages. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News. News of the Godly, Los Angeles Cardinal Roger Mahoney didn't call police in 1986 after a priest admitted to molesting two boys, and he didn't want per, uh, warn parishioners because the police had told him the children were illegal immigrants who had returned to Mexico, according to court documents released this very week. Mahoney said he didn't take stronger action against the Reverend Michael Baker because he didn't know the victim's identities 
and because Baker told him the abuse happened outside the parish. These are all good reasons. Raj, I don't know what you're worried about. Oh, he's not worried. Okay. Much of how Mahoney handled Baker has already been made public, but the testimony released by the court marked the first time the Cardinal gave a sworn deposition about his actions as head of the L.A. Diocese, Archdiocese. It's an Archdiocese. Pardon me. Note the attitude, including how uh, he handled allegations against Baker over a 14-year period. The deposition was part of a sex abuse lawsuit recently settled for $2.2 million. Please give. The Archdiocese in 2004 released a report that acknowledged Mahoney made mistakes in handling the priest. <laughs> in dealing with the priest, I think, is what they mean. The priest is now serving a 10-year sentence for child molestation. A federal grand jury investigation into the archdiocese's handling of the clergy abuse crisis is ongoing. 22 alleged victims have accused Baker of abuse. Not all of them have filed lawsuits. I believe too readily in Baker's contrition and in our ability to treat and monitor him effectively, Mahoney said in a statement. The past has informed the present, however, and I have made sure that our sexual abuse prevention policies and procedures will keep our children young and young people safe from predators like Michael Baker. Well, of course, he's in prison. But I know what you mean. And, Deadline Boston, the Archdiocese of Boston announced last week it had put a senior priest on administrative leave after receiving complaints of sexual abuse of children 50 years ago, church officials said. The Archdiocese says Reverend F. Dominique Mena, a senior priest... In residence at St. Mary's Church in Quincy, Massachusetts, yes, it's Quincy, will remain on administrative leave pending the outcome of a preliminary investigation into the complaints. The Archdiocese said it immediately notified law enforcement once it received complaints, and the administrative leave does not represent a determination of Father Menace's guilt or innocence. Uh, Cardinal Sean O'Malley said his diocese was concerned with the emotional implications in the case. I recognized news of these allegations may be a source of distress for many people. The Archdiocese's statement statement did not elaborate on the allegations or how they came to light. The, uh, they have made counseling out of the services available to alleged victims of abuse in their families and to parishes impacted by clergy sexual abuse. News of the godly, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, in response to a listener's question, yes, these are all copyrighted features, and no, I don't mean it. Excuse me, sir, what did you say? When you shout so loud, it's hard to tell. You say that I must change my ways, or I am sure. Well, I know you'd damn me if you could But my friend, that's simply not your call Oh, if God is great and God is good Why is your heaven so about the eight religions that run the world. 
I'm not sure what the other five are after Christian, Jewish, and iPhone. Please welcome Stephen Prothero. Please have a seat. Sorry, I know it's, it's Prothero. It's Prothero. However you want to say it, Prothero. That's right. Any way I want to say it? Smith. I'll go. P R O T H E R O. Smith. Now, uh, you, sir, you have you have a new book here called God is Not One. The eight rival religions that run the world and why their differences matter. So you admit that there are differences between religions. Because I hear a lot of, like, all one path. That's right. I mean, one of the main arguments of the book is that religions are not all different paths up the same mountain that they No, attack. they're not. Some aren't going up the mountain. Some are going down the crevasse. Well, that's right. And I like to think they're going up different mountains with different techniques and different tools. You know, Christians tr try to get to salvation. They try to attack the problem of sin. But Buddhists try to deal with the problem of suffering, and they try to achieve, achieve nirvana. So very different, very different paths, wait, 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 very wait, different wait, goals. Wait, they, 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 the Buddhists have suffering? No, Buddhists are trying to get rid of suffering. Christians aren't aiming to get rid of suffering. Um, no, we embrace suffering. Well, exactly. That's no, right. no, as a Catholic, that's why we have Christ on the cross instead of the, you know, just the Protestant cross. That's right. Which yeah. I always go like, what happened to Jesus? Yeah. And we have, we have Christ on the cross, and, and we go, I emulate the suffering of Christ. And that's how God wants us to do it. Right, and this is part of that's the... That's how God wants everyone to do it. This is part of the point of the book, is that, is that the religions are not, uh, are not the same. That They're what, not equal either, are they? Be, what might be not you know, equal, are they? a good thing in one religion... Sir, is are they equal? Are our religions all equal? <laughs> no, I, no, I, I don't Which one do you... What's the best one? What's the best religion? Uh, well, you Put could, it out there. You could get a lot of people in this show to tell you which was the biggest and the baddest and the best religion, but that's not the, that's not the point of my book. The point of the book is to say, look, there's these eight different religions. They're going about looking at the problems of the world, how to become a human being in very different ways. Well, and, what, what, and, like, what is like? What is the problem of? What's the problem the of Islam? What's the problem of Islam? Well, the problem of Islam is pride. So we think we can live in a self-sufficient way without God, and we need to submit to God. That's what Islam means. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean peace. It means it means submission. So we need to bow down. We need to pray five times a day. And it's a very Hindu. What's their problem? Well, in Hinduism, the problem is we keep getting reborn over and over and over again, and that's horrible. And, and we don't want to do that. It was very different from in Christianity, where the goal is to be to be born again, right? Mm -hmm. So um, so Hindus have Hindus have a, di a very different problem that they're attacking. Confucians are trying to deal with the problem of of social order. We have disorder in society. And we can create social order through etiquette, through propriety, through rituals, and things like that. And the Taoists, what's their deal? Well, the Taoists are trying to trying to uh, feel uh, have a life that's really alive. The idea is Confucians are telling you do all this empty ritual, do all this etiquette, and it just makes you feel sort of stilted. And they want to live a life that's natural, that's free. So, the, is Taoism a response to Confucianism? It is. They're both religions of China, and they're which and, came first? Well, Confucianism a little earlier than Taoism. And what about Hindu Buddhism? Well, Hinduism comes earlier, and, and then Buddhism com comes after that. Was that a response to Hinduism? Well, yeah, pretty much. And, and is, like, is, is, Buddha, is Buddhism to Hinduism as Christianity is to Judaism? Uh, I'm not sure about that. But <laughs> Let's but, go with yes. Let's least, go with yes. Well, we'll go, that we'll makes go with me yes. seem smart. Right. We'll go with yes in the sense that it, it came after. But, you know, in, in Judaism, for example, there isn't this idea of sin that we have in Christianity. So there's a lot of commonalities. Adam and between, Eve, Adam and Eve, the, the you know, Jewish, yeah, the, Adam and Eve were Jewish. Yeah, but, well, that... <laughs>
Check under the fig leaf, my friend. Christians understand that story. Christians understand that story as a as a story of sin, but it's understood Absolutely. differently in, in the Jewish tradition. So there isn't this problem of original sin in Judaism. You don't need the Savior to come down and die on the cross and take away our sins. It's a very different idea where the problem is exile. We're exiled from God. We're exiled from one another, and we want to return to God, and we want to return return to one another. So why did you write the book? Well, I wrote the book because I wrote the book because um, religions are horribly misunderstood. They're very, very important in the world, but we have these atheists who are saying, "Oh, all the religions are the same and bad," and then we have these multiculturalists who are saying, "Oh, all the religions are the same and, and, and good." And I don't think this idea that the religions are all the same serves to understand the world. The world is furiously religious. We have all these religions that are very influential. You can't understand what's going on in China without thinking about Confucianism. You can't understand what's going on in the Middle East without understanding Judaism, Christianity, Islam. Who's winning? And it doesn't help. Who's winning? It doesn't help to pretend they're all the same. Who's winning? Well, I think Islam is winning, I hate to say. But, you know, I, 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 list, I, I list the religions in order of their contemporary impact, and right now Christianity is losing, well, it's losing market share, if you think about it in business terms. You know, um, well, of course, oh, of course, but Jesus always wins in the end. I mean, <laughs> Jesus loves to run up the odds. You saw what he did the last time he was here. They, he let them think he had them on the ropes. Well, that's true. Okay, but, then but, three days later, boom, he comes back, they clean up at the table. Okay, so right now, that may be the case. And that will be the case forever after. Thank you so much, Stephen Prothro. The book is... I love hearing from listeners who write in to tell me about how this show positively impacts their lives. It reinforces the idea that what I'm doing really may be making a little bit of a difference. What I love even more is that it's the support of the listeners themselves which makes this show possible. If you appreciate the service this show provides, you can make individual donations or become a member and donate $5 a month or even save a couple of bucks by paying for a year in advance. Member support gives me the time it takes to produce 10 shows per month, and in return, members receive access to bonus audio and video content through members-only raw feeds. For details or to sign up, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. Rob Stein from the Washington Post has uh, written an article about a study that has to do with abstinence-only education and how it might be uh, a very effective form of sex education, mm -hmm. right? Now, in the past, there have been no studies that indicate this, right? So conservatives are looking at this study and saying, yes, we got them, right? Abstinence-only education is effective, and we have a study that proves it, except this study doesn't prove shit. Oh, damn. Okay. Now, let me tell you what the findings of the study were, okay? It says that only about a third of 6th and 7th graders who completed an abstinence-focused program started having sex within the next two years. Nearly half of the students who attended other classes, including ones that combined information about abstinence and contraception, became sexually active. Okay. Okay, so basically, those who took the abstinence-focused courses uh, were less likely to engage in sex in the next two years and those who took comprehensive sex education were more likely to engage in sex in the next two years now the reason why this study doesn't prove anything is because the abstinence focused education or curriculum 
wasn't really abstinence only. And what I mean by that is it was a very moderate form of sex education. First of all, um, what it did is it, it didn't give any moral Structures. standard. Yeah, yeah. moral uh, standards when it came to having sex. Basically, the abstinence-focused curriculum said, you know, you don't have to wait till marriage to have sex. Just wait for the time that's right for you, right? which is super moderate. That's not abstinence only. Come on. And also, uh, the abstinence only curriculum uh, did not disparage condom use. Right. And so it wasn't, first of all, let's get this clear. Mm -hmm. It wasn't abstinence only. I don't know why they keep calling it that. It was abstinence focused. Right. It talked about condoms. So if you're going to do safe sex discussion and then tell kids not to have sex until they're ready, yeah, I'm in. I think that's exactly right. And that's pretty so much... So am I surprised that that worked? I don't question the numbers. Mm -hmm. I think the numbers are right. I think it's a legitimate study, right? Mm -hmm. Now, y you can argue about some of the specifics, uh, but overall, I think, yeah, okay, that makes sense. But when you listen to what was in the program, it w there was no moralizing, as right. Anna said. There was no, It didn't say, wait till you're married. It said, wait till you're ready, right? And it gave kids a little bit of maturity mm -hmm. about how to handle sex, which is what I would do as a parent. Right. So if they came to me with an abstinence-only program for my kids in my school, and they, and they lectured them about how you you know it's dirty sex and mm -hmm. condoms never work, and you should wait till you're married, mm -hmm. I'd say get out of here. That's nuts. I would never agree to that. Right. But if they come and say, hey, you know, condoms work, and you should only have sex when you're ready, I'm like, yeah, all right. Where do I sign? Right. As a parent, that's what I would want. That makes yeah. sense. And basically, this abstinence-focused education, the way they're labeling it, it's it's comprehensive sex ed, right? To a lesser extent, but it is. It's comprehensive sex ed. Don't have sex until you're ready for it, and when you do decide to have sex, make sure you protect yourself with condoms. That's comprehensive sex education. I have another word for it, which is, of course, it's of course edu sex education. So, uh, Tom, uh, regulate for us. Uh, did, you have, did you have problems with the numbers, or, or is that, do you have a different issue with it? No, I had a, a, couple, of, uh, a couple of issues one of which you touched on, which I'll get to and expand on a little bit. But the first one was I, I had an issue with the age of the kids that they used in the study because they used sixth and seventh graders. And on average, that means that the kids are 11 to 13 years old. Now, the thing to keep into account is they followed them or they got back with them after two years. So you're talking about kids that are uh, 13 to 14 or 15 years old, basically, like getting back to them and saying, okay, have you had sex? Did you use contraception? That sort of thing. Now, the thing is, if you look at a variety of sources, you'll see that in the U.S., the average age that someone loses their virginity is 16 years old. Okay. Right. So that would be for like... For boys. Uh, for, I think for girls, it's 17 years old. And that's today. Back in the day, it used to be 19, right? But for younger people, it's now 16 and 17. So most kids haven't even lost their virginity by the time this study gets back to them. Right. So an analogy that... I would think of for this study, it would be like doing a study on how good a, a retirement plan works and uh, following up with people when they turn 64, <laughs> when the vast majority of people retire when they're 65. You know, a certain percentage of people, yeah, before, you know, before right. 65. But, but uh, let me do a counterpoint on that, Tom. That's a, r a very good point, very important point, and then we know that other studies show that eventually everybody has sex before they get married, right? Or almost everybody, right? Mm -hmm. So now... Uh, no matter what pledge or what program that they went through. Now, having said that, 
if this program, Tom, delays kids from having sex for a little while, and they have sex at 15 rather than 13, or 17 rather than 15, I think as a parent, I'm pretty happy with that. I call that a success. You see what I'm saying by that? I don't expect them to not have sex until they're 28. I just, I'm hoping they can make it to 18. Right. Well, I think, I think the problem, and it's, it's a well-made point, I think the issue with this is what a lot of people on the religious right and people who have an agenda that's tied to uh, you know, religion or moral teachings are trying to make out of the study. Because if you look at the, at the blog today, if you look on, on the Internet, they're, they're going crazy. They're doing touchdown end zone dances, dancing in the streets. They're, they're over the top about it. They're, they're saying, oh, this is such a huge blow to so-called comprehensive sex education and all of this stuff. But now, that's, that's a great point. Let me just jump in with it to buttress that because, one, they're going to absolutely twist this right away. They're going to call it abstinence only. They're going to say, you see that, Jesus saves, whatever. Mm -hmm. And they're going to go back to wasting a lot of money on garbage programs. Right. That's why I'm, we're a little scared. I, I, I don't mind the study itself. I'm scared about how it's going to get twisted, right? Because right. facts are facts, uh, but unfortunately, not for the right wing. That'll t and my problem is the ma mainstream media is already helping them. Right. Like Washington Post, right in the title, abstinence-only programs might work, study says. That's yes. not what the study said. That's true. Uh, look, and the reason why this is a problem is because the Obama administration has decided to cut out all funding for abstinence-only education. Okay, Obama has finally done something right, and he said, I am not going to fund any type of sex ed curriculum unless there are studies proving that the curriculum is effective, right? Now, conservatives can come to Obama, and they can come to the administration and say, look, look at this study abstinence-focused education works, but they'll twist it. They'll twist it in a way that sounds like abstinence-only education works. And then our money, our tax dollars, are going to go toward these ineffective programs. Now, having said that, the initial reaction of the Department of Education was, uh, well, if this study worked, then we would be interested in doing this kind of, we might do funding behind this, which is reasonable. Mm -hmm. And if you call that a compromise, hey, you know, between uh, comprehensive, complete comprehensive sex education and abstinence-only, and the compromise is absent and focused and you have a study showing it works well that's the kind of compromise I could live with that that makes sense to me as long as they don't go to that extra step right that the conservatives want them to to return 3.6 billion souls for rejudging. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Officials in heaven say a clerical error led to the accidental admission of souls meant to be denied eternal rest in God's kingdom. Archangels now plan to house the 3.6 billion souls on earth while the problem is sorted out. Assistant to St. Peter, Johann Stepmeyer. It is important that those doomed to burn in hell don't... Uh end up here. Stepmeyer went on to apologize for any inconvenience to the living, especially the constant shrieking for mercy. 
Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio. Feels like I'm knocking on heaven's door. Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Hey, 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 yeah. Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Ladies and gentlemen, news of the godly, a defrocked priest who admitted molesting at least 25 children in Stockton, California, is due to begin receiving monthly payments from an annuity purchased by the Stockton Diocese when he turns 65 this week. The payments will total more than $94,000 over 10 years. They've outraged abuse victims who says who say Oliver O'Grady shouldn't be rewarded and any funds should be going to victims' assistance programs. Bishop Stephen Blair, who arranged the annuity, said it was part of a deal a deal, to assure that O'Grady left the priesthood. Blair said he recognized the payments would be received poorly, quote, but there was a reason, unquote. O'Grady was convicted in 1994 of molesting two brothers. He served almost seven years in prison, then was deported to his native Ireland. There's more to Ireland than this. And there's more. John Caruso, a uh, priest from Newfoundland, Canada, was convicted of sexually abusing an altar boy 11 years ago. No, sorry, John Caruso was the victim. He is, uh, the the priest was Reverend James Neal. Uh, Caruso and, and his family sued Neal, the diocese, and the former bishops for $8.6 million claiming that the church officials knew or should have known the priest was a sexual predator. The response was an unexpected legal thunderbolt. Neil and the diocese countersued Caruso's mother and father. They claimed the parents were negligent in failing to get counseling and medical help for their teenage son. The legal hardball shattered their that once devout family. Caruso's parents had to hire their own lawyers. Family relationships were strained. Caruso attempted suicide several times. His mother died while the legal war still raged. She took her to her grave thinking she was part of the problem, says a sobbing 40-year-old Caruso. Four months after burying his mother, Caruso accepted the diocese's undisclosed financial offer. Why do you think I took the settlement, he asked. I couldn't take it anymore. I was going to kill myself. And the future Pope Benedict XVI refused to defrock an American priest who confessed to molesting numerous children and even served time for it because... The priest wouldn't agree to the discipline. Documents obtained by the Associated Press from court filings in the case of the late Reverend Alvin Campbell of Illinois show Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, following church law at the time, turned down a bishop's plea to remove the priest for no other reason than the abuser's refusal to go along with it.
Let's go to Glenn Beck. Um, he apparently is against social justice. Now, you think, oh, come on. That, that can't be true. Who's against social justice? Who's against justice? Right? But he also says he's against democracy. Now, again, you think, like, come on, he can't really say that. But he is. He says, well, you know, his excuse is, no, we're a republic, we're not really a democracy. All right, now, apparently, if you're pursuing social justice, you're a Nazi and a communist. Once again, you think it can't be true, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to play the clip for you. Okay, this is from his show, and at different times, by the way, uh, on his TV show, he has held up, while talking about the same issue, a swastika and the sickle and the hammer of the communists. Okay, so let's watch. Or let's listen. I sh I'm sorry, uh, clip number six. Because they just can't do it on their own. Isn't it weird, as we've made so much progress, that society has gotten worse? That's strange. See, the idea behind progressives, and this is why, and I, I'm begging you, I am begging you, your right to religion and freedom to exercise religion and read all of the passages in the Bible as you want to read them and as your church wants to preach them are going to come under the ropes here uh, in probably the next year. If it lasts that long, it'll be the next year. I beg you, look for the words social justice or economic justice on your church website. If you find it, run as fast as you can. Social justice and economic justice, they are code words. Now, the idea, hang on, Sue's saying, am I advising people to leave their church? Yes, if, if I'm going to Jeremiah Wright's church, yes, well, leave your church. Yes, that's probably good advice. Social church. justice and economic justice, they are code words. If you have a, a priest that is pushing social justice, go find another parish. Go alert your uh, bishop and tell them, excuse me, are you down with this whole social justice thing? I don't care what the church is. If it's my church, I'm alerting the church authorities, excuse me, what's this social justice thing? And if they say, yeah, we're all in that social justice thing, I am in the wrong place. Possible they need to be uh, illuminated to the uh, hidden meaning behind some of these terms. I think uh, a lot of yeah, people adopt very green sort of policies a, without realizing that's that. A very good, there's a very good chance that people don't know what it is. That's why you have to educate yourself. Social justice, uh, and tonight I'm going to show you history you have never seen before. Uh, Pat saw some of the uh, history uh, that we're, I'm showing tonight. You saw some of the clips. Have you ever seen anything like this American history that I'm going to show tonight? Mm. No. If I, told you, if I told you that I had film of this, you would say, no, no way. Would you not? Yeah. Yeah, because uh, I've never heard of it. If I told you that while, while communists were in the White House advising the president and, and making policy, communists in the White House, the communist movement had filled the Madison Square Garden to the rim with cheering communists. They weren't hiding. They were talking about how great their relationship is with the Democratic Party, etc., etc. If I told you that, 
you'd say, okay, what? But how about if I told you this? At the same time, the Nazis had a convention at Madison Square Garden, and right there on the swastika, they had the big red banners with the white circle and the swastika, and right next to it, a big red, white, and blue American flag banner. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you history you've never seen before. You know why? Because it's not really history. Now, does that mean that there were never communists in this country, ever? There were never anybody that supported the Nazis, ever, in this country? No, of course not. Can you find that in American history? You can. In fact, Jesse Ventura, who's going to be on the show later, writes about how Prescott Bush, the great-grandfather uh, of George W. Bush, helped German steel interests that were helping the Nazi party. And he did it for money. And it was before the war, and then, of course, it was after the war, and so he got in some trouble for that. Okay, now does that make Bush a Nazi? It doesn't. That was his great-grandfather from a long time ago. But yes, there have been Nazis or Nazi supporters or et cetera, et cetera, communists in this country. But you get the trick he's doing. It's called the same sentence strategy. I just came up with that term. Bush did it for uh, attacking Iraq. Now, he did, he, he did at times say it, but oftentimes he wouldn't say Iraq did 9-11. He would just say, 9-11 was terrible. Oh, my God, they attacked us. And you know what? Iraq is in the same part of the world that that 9-11 happened from. And Saddam Hussein is terrible. And he keeps saying it in the same sentence so that by the end, by the time we invaded Iraq, 69% of Americans thought that Saddam Hussein was personally responsible for 9-11 because they kept using it in the same sentence, and nobody ever pointed it out. Beck is the master of that. So in the middle of those stories, he started talking about social justice, then he switched to Nazis and communists. Same sentence. Did he explain how they were connected? How the church that preaches social justice is connected to Nazis? No, never connected it. But it's the same sentence. Nazis, communists, social justice. Social justice, fascist, communists. And then the guys listening to Glenn Beck go, I don't know, I guess if they say social justice, they must be Nazis. Now, get to the point about social justice in the church. I mean, can you believe he says that if your church is preaching social justice, first of all, you should alert the church authorities. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Imagine you go up to your church authorities and you're like, I don't know if you know this, but they're preaching justice in this church. What should they be preaching instead? Injustice? <laughs> I mean, look at how they turn things on their heads. And now, the people who wrapped themselves in the church were like, oh, the church, the church, the church. The minute that they find it slightly inconvenient, if you actually teach Jesus' words in the New Testament, they're like, oh, leave the church. Who cares? Leave it right away. Beck says, if my church is talking about justice, I know I'm in the wrong place. Well, that part is definitely true. Social justice is apparently code words for communism and Nazism. Well, that's got to be news to Jesus. When he did his Sermon on the Mount, I guess he was preaching fascism and communism. Unreal. Unreal. You think they care about the church? They don't care about the church. You think they care about justice? Obviously, they're telling you they don't care about justice. Right? All they care about is how to make the bucks. So if somebody says at church, hey, maybe we should look out for the poor... Glenn Beck says, oh, no, 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 that's economic justice. No, 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 no. No, you crush the poor. You help the bankers. 
You help the corporations. You help the biggest people, the richest people in America. Now, if you told bank, uh, Beck that, he said, oh, no, no, I'm not interested in helping the bankers. But when you ask him, hey, should we regulate the banks so they don't take these risks with our money? He says, oh, no, 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 don't regulate them. Don't regulate them. No, 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 the government should get out of the business of regulating banks and let them run amok. And in the end, well, will you look at that? The bankers wound up with all the money. And the poor got crushed. And if you talk about, hey, maybe we should help the poor in church, no, that you're at the wrong place. Social and economic justice, no, we can't have that. What they're trying to do is they're trying to drive out any remnants of the decent Jesus, the one on the, that delivered the Sermon on the Mount, the one that cared about the poor, the needy, the weakest. They're trying to drive that from the church. Now, I, you know, look, I, I, I'm not a big fan of Christianity or any of the religions, right? But if you read the New... I tell you all the time, read the Bible, right? And it's got downsides, and I talk about it all the time. But it has upsides, too. If you believe in any of the upsides, if you read the New Testament at all, and you heard this, I mean, the number one guy Jesus would throw out on his ass the minute he came back down, if you believe it, is Glenn Beck. So I could just see that conversation. Jesus comes down, and he's like, so you're to tell me I'm not, I shouldn't talk about social justice. That that makes me a Nazi. That I shouldn't talk about economic justice and helping the poor, because that makes me a Nazi. I'd love to see how Glenn answered that. These people are using your anger, and unfortunately for some of their viewers, your naivete, to try to make more money off your ass. And if anyone dares complain, that the banks this year, in the middle of a gigantic economic collapse that they caused, are making record bonuses, record bonuses. If you dare complain, you're a communist and a Nazi. That's Glenn Beck for you. Thanks for listening, everyone. So, of course, I just got back from Netroots Nation in Las Vegas. Uh, I have lots of stories to tell. It's a great time and so on and so on. But uh, what I didn't realize is that I ended up having a lot of um, opinions about Vegas itself. I'd never been there before, and I, I find myself uh, very opinionated on the subject. But luckily, luckily for you and for me, I think, uh, people who are more entertaining than I also have opinions on it that are very much in line with mine. So what I'm going to do is actually uh, give them the lion's share of the commentary time here at the end of the show and allow uh, my new friends Jamie and Allison, the hosts of Citizen Radio, who I met in Las Vegas, to tell you what they thought of the city, all the while understanding that I agree with, I think, essentially everything they say. Now, just be prepared for a little bit of swearing, because that's how they roll. Vegas, baby! Oh. Are you feeling lucky? Now, everybody, I have a bet for you to take. Okay. You like this? Yep. See, I'm, I'm using... I like the lingo. I'm using gambling analogies. If you could use gambling analogies for the rest of the episode, I would really appreciate that, because I have been infected, not with herpes, as we thought, because we're in Vegas, right. but with the spirit of gaming. Blackjack! Yes! Here's a bet. That's a game. Here's a bet for all of you to take. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, listeners of Citizen Radio. Will 
Allison and I kill ourselves together, of course, because we are in love before this show is over because we are in the rotting abyss that is this dumb fucking city. Hey, everybody, do you know Las Vegas is a real place? It is. I'm looking at it right now out our hotel window. It exists. There's mountains and mm-hmm. palm trees and then sort of hazy on the horizon, herds of fat tourists yeah. who descend upon the city. Much like gladiators descended upon villages they were about to pillage. Not gladiators because they were in shape. Much like locusts. Fat, sweaty locusts. Okay. And they infest hotels and they just sit at these slot machines for 12 hours at a time, putting quarters into it with the bucket balanced on their lumpy thighs. Would you say if they were in a deck of cards, that'd be the Joker? Bam! Number three! Nice! Number three! Nice! Anyway, here's here's the deal. Netroots Nation was nice enough to fly us out mm-hmm. to do our radio show and for me to do a little stand-up. So it would behoove me to trash Netroots Nation's decision-making skills. It would behoove you? It would benefit you? Yeah, I'm just going to throw in wrong words okay. at different places. Is that part of the gaming yeah. thing? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. So, it would ejaculate me. All right. To come into their turf mm-hmm. and jumping jack okay. all over their flash I'm getting bucket. a little confused. Chairs, our lamps, okay, and apples, our Cheerios. Have you figured out what I'm doing yet? Saying things I'm seeing in the room. Yeah, I almonds, our Allisons. The almonds are Allisons, yes. And Macintosh computers speaking to microphones. I feel like before this happened, you Windows. Were talking, you were talking about Netroots Nation. All right, so they chose this. It's a great, great organization and conference. I mean, it's pretty much just like the biggest progressives in the world show up at a certain place at a certain time and we battle plan. And it's awesome. Uh, We're going to have Marcos from the Daily Kozon. We're going to talk to union people and talk to pro-choice activists and talk to a lot of our friends and comedians and smart people. Why Vegas? Yeah. I don't understand. It just seems like a really garish, greedy, gluttonous place to celebrate progressive ideals. It it seems like a microcosm. Netroots having the conference in Las Vegas seems like a, a microcosm of why the Democrats lose everything. Because it's one of those things where it's like... Yeah, what does this place celebrate? Greed, gluttony, Republicans, fucking gross frat guys, rape, strippers, cigarettes, steaks. I don't know if Vegas celebrates rape. I haven't seen it on like on a banner. No, 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 at the Palms across the street. Wednesday is rape night. Really? Yeah. Well, I certainly didn't know that. Do you stand incorrected? Say that's the wrong. Yeah, I stand incorrected. That's wrong. Yeah. Would you say that I just royal flushed you? 
Yes, you royal flushed me. Would you say that I just full housed you? Here's here's a problem. Uh, you don't know any gambling terms, do you? Go fish. Yeah. <laughs> I figured that out when you said go flush. Memory. Remember that game? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> also played with cards. Fifty-two pickup. I only know children's yeah, games. Yeah, I noticed that. I was downstairs and I tried to play fifty-two pickup with one of the dealers, and I was chased out of the casino. They area. don't like when you do that. I was. I am not welcomed back downstairs. You should have asked me before you did that because I totally could have told you they frown on you doing that. They do. Anyway, so I, I just feel like it's one of those things where it's like we're just like Republicans. We can go to Las Vegas, and it's like, no, 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 we're better than Republicans. Let's go to Madison. Are we better? I mean, I don't know. I just, uh, you don't want to badmouth anybody here, but, uh, you know, there's still that problem of, we're going to get shit-faced, and it's like, oh, dear. Yeah. And, And I know that's not everybody who's here. There's a lot of really good people who we're going to interview who work their asses off. Totally. You know? And there are, look, there are lots of people, Allison and I happen to be sober because we do not do anything well in moderation, but, you know, there are also people who can have a healthy drinking life and uh, also get things done, obviously, many of our listeners, or, you know, they, they, they can handle themselves. It's just, it is one of those things where it's like, all right, we're all getting together to share ideas and you read all the tweets and it's like, margaritas by the pool, fucking karaoke. And it's just like, oh, ugh. Yeah, like I can't envision a situation ever where I would be excited to do karaoke. Even with some of my favorite bloggers. Sorry, Atrios. I don't want to sing Journey songs with you. I don't know if Atrios wants to sing Journey songs. I don't know if Atrios is going to karaoke. Um, But yeah, I was actually... Whatever you do, for the love of God, if you would like to maintain respect or admiration for Netroots Nation, do not search NN10, that hashtag, in the Twitter search engine. Because one fine lady was tweeting nonstop about all the cabana boys she's sexually harassing while she's here. And I was like, oh, good. <laughs> I'm so glad she traveled oh. 3,000 miles from the Midwest. I saw her. She's playing at the Palms tonight in their rape night. Oh, no. It's rape night. <laughs> she's, she's cabana boys. She's cabana boys run. Run. It, it always ends poorly for them on rape night at the Palms. Oh, those poor cabana boys. <laughs> and the Chip and Dale dancers. Oh, goodness. Oh. Well, they're asking for it. Sorry, let's, fellas. Let's be honest. With their tiny pants and their little ties, little bow ties. For the longest, what did they think was going to happen? For the longest time. You sluts. <laughs> So there you go. That That's a nice little overview for you of Vegas. And now just to round out uh, what would have been, you know, a 10-minute bitch fest for me, uh, I'm just going to add a, a couple of points that they didn't touch on. Uh, first of all, it is, you know, uh, more than 100 degrees all of the time in Vegas. And that's not inherently bad for the people who live there. I mean, they didn't choose for it to be that way. Um, but they did choose for the temperature inside the buildings to be about 65 degrees. So the you, the only two choices you have are sweating and shivering. Those are the only two. So you're uh, incredibly uncomfortable all the time. And of course, it's enormous waste of energy. But wait, it gets better because you think that just cooling buildings to 65 degrees would be a waste of energy. But no, it gets worse when you go down to the strip itself and you walk along the street and there are buildings cooled to 65 degrees with not just the doors, but sometimes entire walls open to the street so that you're walking along in 100 plus degree weather 
with an arctic wind blowing at you from inside the buildings. And it just makes you want to weep, you know? Like, do you have, uh, like, a conservative friend or family member who, like, on election day will call you up and be like, hey, hey, I canceled out your vote once again, like, just to kind of, you know, poke you in the ribs a little bit. Like, I know you voted for those Democrats, but I, you know, I, I went Republican. I canceled you out. That's that's kind of what Vegas is. Uh, Vegas is your asshole conservative uh, friend or family member who is like, hey, you know all that good you're trying to do in the world? Well, we're working twice as hard to fuck you over the other direction. Okay, so I, I can leave it right there. I mean, don't get me wrong. I can keep going about my disdain for Vegas and all that it is and stands for and the fact that it is, frankly, an uninhabitable piece of land that is not suitable for uh, for human habitation. Uh, but I, I won't go into that. So what I'm going to do is thank a couple of members and get out of here. I want to thank Shannon W who signed up uh, for a monthly membership uh, pretty recently, just back on uh, June 2nd. And, and then Judy W, a totally different W, uh, who signed up for a full year in advance on June 28th and, uh, and went above and beyond the standard membership level just to help out the show a little bit more. So huge thanks uh, to Judy and Shannon and all the members who make the show possible. Of course, the show is made possible um, by every single one of you just by listening uh, and, and all the different things you can do. Honestly, there are so many ways you can help the show that it's cumbersome to uh, to talk about them on, on every episode, so I tend to not do that. But what I have done is I've put everything together inside a big orange box on the right side of the website. It says support BOTL, and I just really encourage you to, to go over to the website and uh, and check that out, see all the different things you can do. Uh, you know, leaving reviews in iTunes uh, and on and on and on. You know, it's not it's not just donations. It's promotion and, and all those other sorts of things. So thanks in advance for uh, for helping out in whatever way you can. And that's going to do it for me. So coming to thank goodness, not from Las Vegas, but still from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 10 times a month. Thanks entirely to the support of members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black blinds, black and white. Bought a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who'll take you out